What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. Every single thing that you do on a social network or on a website is essentially recorded. How many pages you visited? What did you click on? How did you get to that website? What page did you leave on? How many photos have you ever uploaded? Where were those photos uploaded? How many places have you checked into? Who have you tagged? What photographs have you been tagged in? With whom? Where were those photographs taken? Who's in your friendship circle? Who did you go to school with? There are algorithms and machine learning um, technologies that connect all of that data together and start to find patterns. That's Lisa Talia Moretti speaking. She's a digital sociologist and tech ethics advocate with a big focus on data. I think some of the data that's quite concerning is uh, facial recognition technology, where machines are being fed huge amounts of images, so pictures of people's faces. And that can come from dating websites, from photographs of you on Facebook or Instagram or anywhere on the internet. You don't even have to upload it yourself. It could be somebody else that's uploaded it for you. With all that data out in the wild, all it takes is for somebody to suck it up and they can start connecting the dots. So there were researchers last year from Stanford University who, without the user's permission, scraped 30,000 photographs from a dating website that was public, right? So they took it that they could just use those photographs for research. Because it was a dating site, people were also asked the data points, um, what is your sexual orientation? So gay, straight, bi, right? And so they had all of that data connected. So they could then connect faces to sexual orientation. And essentially, they built an an algorithm that they said could detect just by somebody's face if they were gay or straight or bi. 
the algorithm worked. It could predict sexual orientation from photographs with 91% accuracy for men and 83% accuracy for women based on just five photographs. And Stanford isn't the only place using facial recognition to categorize people. Governments are too, all around the world. This is Sleepwalkers. Welcome, I'm Osvaloshin. In the last episode, we looked at what happens when artificial intelligence digests huge datasets to find patterns and make predictions. Like, what's the most typical movie synopsis? Or is that mole cancerous? But advances in machine learning are also making us more and more legible. In today's episode, we ask, what happens when we become the dataset and the power to predict is turned on us? Here's Lisa again. The extra terrifying thing is why creates this kind of technology? Like, who does it serve? Why do we need this? If you take this type of technology, feed it to a city-wide CCTV surveillance system, and say that you go to a place like Saudi Arabia where being gay is considered a crime, and suddenly you're just, what, pulling people off the street and arresting them because you're gay because the computer said so, so, like, now you're going to prison? This may sound like a terrifying Minority Report-style future, but actually, it's here today. Hi, Kara. Hi, Oz. So, Lisa was talking about what happens when governments start to connect the dots of all this data, but it's already happening with private enterprise. For example, insurance companies can now see someone who joins a Facebook group about a genetic mutation and use that data to guess that that person may have the genetic mutation and the condition that's associated. And then the computer says, let's raise their premium or let's deny them care. And so we can use this proxy data to do something the New York Times has recently called proxy discrimination. And I think something that's even more widely applicable is this definition of surveillance capitalism, which is essentially that data is not just data anymore. It's money. Companies can use data to make predictions about future behavior, and that can make them profit, right? That's surveillance capitalism. I using information about joining a Facebook group to make an insurance decision. Right. And it's, I don't know, it's a little bit scary. In the U.S., it's all about capitalism, but in other countries, surveillance is used for other purposes. For example, in China, it's about social control. But in China, this same massive ingestion of data and statistical modeling is used for governance. So let's take a closer look at China and how they're using technology to amplify the power of the state. They have this notion of a social credit score, which is how good of a citizen you are, according to the government. They have literally hundreds of millions of cameras around, and they can basically do things like, you've been out at the bar you know, until two the last couple of nights. That's not really what a good, upstanding citizen would do. So your social credit score can get dinged because you've been spending too much time at night at a bar. That's Dr. Alex Kilpatrick. He and Mary Haskett co-founded Blink Identity, a facial recognition company that can recognize a user's face in, yes, the blink of an eye, about 0.4 seconds. Here's Blink co-founder Mary on Chinese surveillance. They have cameras, so you're recorded jaywalking, and so 
your score goes down, you know, and you automatically get a ticket, which, again, doesn't sound like that big of a deal if you really believe in law and order, except if your score isn't high enough, you can't buy a plane ticket. You have to travel by bus. You know, you can't live in certain areas. And, and you can obviously see how this could be abused. I mean, it doesn't take much of an imagination. Other factors that can bring down your social credit score include what you buy at the store, your online browsing, and even having a friend with a low score. This use of generalized surveillance can keep a whole population in check, which is more or less the explicit goal of the Communist Party of China. This can be stifling for the average Han Chinese citizen. For minorities, it can be much, much worse. Right. You know, more specifically and more dauntingly, it can be used for internment. You know, in the case of the Uyghur minority in China, using data that is being created by this minority to just communicate, you know, one person communicating with another person. Those two are connected. They're both Uyghurs. Right. Five Uyghurs are gathering in the same place. Now that we know that, you know, what are we going to do with that data? Oh, we're going to send these people to re-education camps. And as technology improves, so does the state's ability to project power. China today is cleaning the floor with the Americans on voice and facial recognition technology. That's Ian Bremer, an expert on global political risk and the founder of the Eurasia Group. The Chinese have much more data. You also have a government that is consolidating the data and allocating it for different types of purposes, and you have no presumption of privacy whatsoever. With no presumption of privacy, the amount of data you can collect from your citizens grows exponentially. And that actually gives you a huge technological advantage. This is how Kai-Fu Lee explains it. What makes an AI algorithm work better is how much data you use to train it. And that's the beauty of deep learning. You just keep throwing data at it, and it just performs better. And Kai-Fu Lee understands this world better than most. His fund, Sinovation Ventures, has invested in Megvi, a facial recognition company valued at $4 billion. Kai-Fu also ran Google China, so he knows the landscape. China simply has more data than the U.S. due to not only the large number of users, but also the depth in which Chinese users use the Internet for ordering food, for shared bicycles, for mobile payments. So the AI will actually just perform better because it's trained on more data. Some of that data is taken from citizens using surveillance. But according to Kai-Fu, much is freely given. I think the Chinese culture and the Chinese people are more pragmatic so that if the software delivers pragmatic value, they ask fewer questions. For example, you know, we've funded an app that loans money to you. It asks you a couple of questions and it takes data from your phone at the same level as a Facebook would take data from your phone and it zaps the money to you instantly if it decides to lend money to you. I think in the U.S., people might question, do I really want to give my data to a lending application? And is it appropriate to consider the make of my phone as a part of give me, giving me money or my zip code? Because that might reflect certain things about me. The breadth and depth of data in China, both from a larger population and a much deeper integration with technology, gives China a serious competitive advantage. Where the Americans have much better scientists. The Chinese are able to buy a lot of science. Now, when you talk to specialists in this field, they will tell you that in many parts of AI, great data and okay scientists will frequently beat great scientists and okay data. 
Cara, the scary thing is that China is using that technological superiority to build a very different kind of state, you know, one in which the price of dissent is intolerably high. You know, so according to Ian, public demonstrations have fallen markedly. Right, because if you know you're being watched, you're probably less likely to commit public displays of civil disobedience. Right. We talked about the Uyghurs earlier. In Kashgar, which is a Muslim city in China, Uyghurs have to register to go into the mosque. And once they're inside, they face a bank of cameras, like many, many surveillance cameras. And go figure, Muslims stop going to mosque voluntarily. Well, because going to mosque is an act of civil disobedience where they are. Even if it's not explicitly stated, it's it's heavily implied. Right. I mean, I think about it for myself. Like, if I were living in an area in the United States where going to temple was going to land me in an internment camp, I would not be going voluntarily if I knew there were security cameras all over my temple. Absolutely. And the crazy thing is, you wouldn't even have to know if those security cameras work. It's like on the motorway in England, we have a lot of speed cameras, and no one knows if they're actually doing anything apart from once every five years you get a ticket, but it still slows people down. The panopticon. Even if they can't do that, but people think they can do that, right? I mean, you don't need 100% certainty. You just need a government that is starting to get that capacity and make it known and have a few people that are sort of strung up as examples, and suddenly everyone's scared. And this isn't only happening in China. According to Ian, it was a key part of Bashar al-Assad's strategy in the Syrian civil war. Assad got some help from the Russians, who gave him a couple hundred computer scientists to go and work with the Syrian military and identify on social media and on text messaging who were those Syrian citizens that were nodes of dissent. And within six months, no more moderate opposition in Syria. They specifically were looking into individual Syrian citizens that were saying things about the regime that were untoward, that were connected to influencers, that were helping to organize protests. And suddenly, you know, a bunch of those people were rounded up and some were never heard from again. And as I mentioned in terms of China, you don't have to do that with many people before people start ratting out their friends, being scared of talking to anyone, not going out. The system worked. We may feel comfortably far from the battlefields of Syria here in the US, and from the overwhelming number of surveillance cameras on practically every street corner in China. But the more effective these technologies are, the more likely they are to be adopted by others. Now in other countries, you're gonna have a confluence of both them liking the model and the Chinese directly exporting it. Who are those countries? Well, look at One Belt, One Road, the you know trillion-plus-dollar investments that the Chinese are making all over the world, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, you know Cambodia, Laos, a whole bunch of countries. And when you look at those countries and you see that the Chinese are providing the money and there's conditionality in return, some of that conditionality is use Chinese standards for technology. And that's in many of these contracts. And with the spread of Chinese standards for technology comes the spread of Chinese-style surveillance, which could ultimately make the whole world trend more authoritarian. So as that happens, these governments are going to say, aha, we get the money from China, we use their technology, we're stuck with their system, but we can use it to ensure that our people stay in power. Again, it's easy to let all of this feel comfortably far away, but remember, The internet doesn't have borders, so you don't have to be in China for the Chinese state to access your data. Yeah, I don't know how many people know this, but 
Grindr is actually owned by a Chinese company. Grindr, the dating app. Yes. And actually, there have been articles about the fact that the U.S. government is trying to force China's hand so that we can buy it back. Because there's so much user data that this company now owns. Well, that Grindr user data is basically being seen by the U.S. government as a strategic asset. It is a strategic asset. I mean, if you think about it, if somebody is on a military base or in a barrack and trying to connect with someone on Grindr, they're turning their location services data on because they want to see people in their area. And if they're turning that location services data on, they're basically making themselves vulnerable to the company that owns the data because it's basically saying, here I am, here I am. And not only that, here I am, here I am, and I'm gay. And that can lead to some possibilities of blackmail even today. Exactly. There was an article in The Interface that was written by this guy, Casey Newton. Chat history, photos, videos, real-time location, all of that is connected to a user's email address. And that means that the user's identity can be very easily learned. That's pretty scary. And even if you don't use Grindr, you might use Clash of Clans or Fortnite, which are very popular gaming apps also owned by the Chinese. Now, we keep saying the Chinese. To be clear, these apps aren't owned by the Chinese government. Right, right, right. (laughs) They're owned by Chinese companies. But what the actions of the U.S. government imply by trying to force this company to sell Grindr back is that they don't believe in the distinction. Right. And do you think the U.S. government would really be working that hard to get back a gay dating app, by the way, if they didn't think that there was not a murky separation between the government and companies in China? Right. So... Every time we give data away, I mean, we're aware that it opens us up to targeted ads on Facebook. We talked about those with Gillian. Um, We're not aware that that data may end up in the hands of potentially, you know, hostile foreign governments. So once again, sleepwalking. We've been talking about how foreign governments are using AI. But when we come back, we'll look at how the police and courts are using it at home in America. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge 
indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Kara, it's easy to look at China and to see the big bad wolf. They're using surveillance technology for the wholesale suppression of an ethnic minority. They have a social credit score. They can limit access to opportunities and even travel. But algorithms also determine outcomes here in the U.S. Exactly. If you think about it, we do use social ratings. If you use Uber and have a rating lower than four out of five stars, you can't get a car. Right. And you can't get a loan if you have a low FICO credit score. And our criminal justice system also uses algorithmic ratings to decide people's fates. When I got arrested at 16, I was in high school, John F. Kennedy High School. That's Glenn Rodriguez. When he was a baby, Glenn's mother was murdered, and when he was three, his father committed suicide. From then on, Glenn was raised by his grandmother, and he searched for belonging. The kid who wants to feel accepted, wants to feel a part of something, right? Whatever the group was up for, I was down, and if they were going one step forward, I would take two. We pretty much planned a a robbery at a car dealership in Queens, and we entered the premises, we took three cars. There was a 25-year-old man in there, and he initially pulled a gun, and so I had a gun, and I shot him. Glenn was arrested and convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years in jail, and he was still a high schooler. You feel powerless, you feel hopeless, especially at that age. So the way I saw it was, this is my life. You know, I'm probably going to die in jail. And so whatever it is that I have to do, I need to survive. One of the things that I learned very quickly is that in prison, one of the only things that is respected is violence. And so in order for you to survive in there, you have to be violent. Because otherwise, you become prey. In time, Glenn established his reputation and started to feel safer. With that security and getting older his thinking began to change. And it wasn't until later, to like my mid-20s, when I started saying, you know what, I need to reverse this trend if I want to have any chance at parole. Glenn had to reverse 13 years of behavior. To survive in prison, he had learned to behave one way, but to get out, he had to behave another. I availed myself of the Puppies Behind Bars program. So I was training service dogs for wounded war veterans for five years. That was an amazing experience, right? Because throughout incarceration, it's almost like you build a wall around yourself. With the dogs, you can't fake it with a dog. If you're trying to, like, teach them a command, sometimes you may have to be silly, which, guess what? In prison, being silly is not acceptable. That's perceived as a weakness. But with that program, oftentimes you had to resort to being silly and throwing yourself on the floor and giggling loud or making all kind of crazy sounds to try to get the dog's attention, right? To a very large extent, I believe that that program kind of helped me regain my humanity. As well as helping Glenn personally, taking part in prison programs for the public good is looked upon favorably by parole boards. So Everything I did, I wanted to document to kind of showcase what I've done. This is who I am today. As part of the process, there's also the compass risk assessment. 
Compass stands for Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. It's an algorithm that claims to be able to predict how likely a defendant is to commit another crime, based on a list of 137 questions. Since being developed in 1998, it's estimated Compass has been used to assess more than one million defendants, including Glenn. You meet with this person a few months before your scheduled parole board date, and they ask you a series of questions. And so when he got to the disciplinary history section of the Compass Risk Assessment, there was a list of offenses, right, for him to check off yes or no for the past 24 months, and it was all no. And anyone who has any experience with prison would tell you that that is almost impossible to do, right? Because misbehavior reports can be for something as simple as having too many pillows, something as simple as your pants hanging off your butt, your sneakers untied. It takes a lot of energy to dodge a misbehavior report during the course of a year, let alone 10. And in my case, it it had been 11. And then I heard him read the question and he says, does this person appear to have notable disciplinary issues? And he says, yes. And I was like, hold up, wait a second. Did I just hear you right? Because I just heard you say that I have notable disciplinary issues. You do realize that I haven't had a misbehavior report in over a decade, right? And his answer was, well, I was told that if there's any instance of misbehavior at any point, I have to check yes for this answer. So I was like, okay. So at that point, there was nothing I could do. I'm appearing before the parole board panel I presented to them a portfolio that was approximately 100 pages, had 25 letters of support. Now, the compass is saying that I'm a a disciplinary issue, and so I shouldn't be released. I was denied because of the fact that I scored high on compass. They played it safe and kept me in. It may have been less than five minutes, the hearing. I waited 26 years to sit in front of a panel of three people for less than five minutes. No one wants to be the one to go against Compass, and next you know something goes wrong, and now your job is on the line because you departed from Compass, which is taken as factual and scientific. In time, Glenn went before another parole board, and this time they freed him against the recommendation of Compass. And now Glenn has built a life for himself, working with teenagers at risk of incarceration at the Center for Community Alternatives. But he's still being affected by the algorithm. Compass does not end upon your release because the, the same Compass risk assessment that's considered uh, for your release determines how you're going to be supervised upon release. There's a number of restrictions that I have. I have a curfew. I'm still haunted by Compass. Despite turning his life around, Compass is still limiting Glenn's freedom. And that should haunt all of us. According to ProPublica, Compass inaccurately labels black defendants as likely to reoffend twice as often as white defendants. Algorithmic discrimination isn't government policy here in the US, like it is against the Uyghurs in China, but it still exists. There's this issue where you could have computer scientists building a more accurate algorithm, but on account of dubious input factors like gender or race or religion, Uh, you've created something that's unconstitutional. That's Jason Tashea. He introduced us to Glenn, and he's the founder of Justice Codes and a legal affairs writer for the American Bar Association Journal. There's this predisposition to believe that math doesn't carry all of the biases that humans do. It's an objective science. I think we need to dispel that idea. 
Jason is describing the very human habit of taking computer output as gospel truth. It's called automation bias, and it's why parole boards often don't feel comfortable overriding algorithms like Compass, and why some people follow their GPS, even when it has them driving into the ocean. This idea that somehow, because math is an underlying force uh, to these tools, makes them more objective or beyond certain types of scrutiny is wrong. Computer algorithms are being used to determine human fate today, whether it's Compass in the US or the social credit score in China. So we have to scrutinize them and understand that their output is not necessarily neutral. The foundational principle of AI is using historical data to predict what will happen next. And that in itself is a challenge to our culture because the American dream is built on the idea that we have a capacity to change, that we can move from rags to riches, from the penitentiary to the boardroom. And it's not just an American narrative. It's Scrooge's change of heart delivering the turkey to the Cratchits on Christmas Day. It's St. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. It's at the very heart of Western culture. But algorithms like Compass aren't built to see the potential in people. They're designed to calculate risk based on past actions. And Compass isn't the only example of algorithms being used in our criminal justice system. When we come back, we go right inside the NYPD to understand how new technology is powering policing. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. It's a freezing cold day in New York City when we arrive at the NYPD headquarters. And before we even get into the main building, 
Julian and I have to pass through airport-style security and naturally give up some data, including submitting a selfie in a kiosk. Yes. Right now our society is holding big conversations about body cameras, police accountability and government monitoring. So we had to ask, how does one of the most recognizable police forces in the world handle our data? My name is uh, Benjamin Singleton. I'm director of analytics at the NYPD. I probably spend half my day writing code and half my day in meetings. The police department collects records as a regular course of our business. We respond to 911 calls. We take crime reports. We make arrests. We issue moving summonses when you, you know, speed in the city. These are examples of the kind of data that we collect. You know, I think there's probably some sentiment that there are back doors into various systems, um, but the NYPD is governed by the same legal processes as any other um, law enforcement agency. If we want data from an outside company or vendor, we get a search warrant from a judge or through a DA's office issue a subpoena, and that's how we collect our data. There are cameras throughout the subways, swipe cars at turnstiles, and easy pass readers on the roads, and more in New York. So what might the NYPD know about me? If you haven't sort of stood in front of a police officer who hasn't taken a report by hand, we probably don't have records on you. That being said, we do collect data through sensors, like license plate readers, um, and we do have data sharing agreements with some other criminal justice agencies, like corrections, uh, like the courts. And so there's obviously opportunities for that kind of data to enter our realm. But one thing that's built into every single NYPD application is an auditing track. So anytime you look at any piece of information, no matter what system you're in, that's being audited. And so we have a very large internal affairs bureau, and people have gotten in trouble before for misuse of computer systems. And so I think that that's an important check. That's reassuring to hear, but why collect so much data in the first place? I think that the next frontier of machine learning in policing is bringing decisions and information into the hands of cops who need to make decisions quickly. We recently rolled out tens of thousands of mobile phones to all of our cops, and putting a computer in their hands has really changed the way that they police. When you have more information, you can make better decisions. So we could be responding to a job at a specific location in a building, and we know what's happened at that building before. We responded to 911 calls there last week in apartment you know, 4C, and in that interaction, it led to some sort of altercation, or we found out that that person that we interacted with had some sort of issue. Well, the cop who's working today might not be the same cop who was working a week ago. And so how do I convey that information, maybe in a phone as a, as a pop-up, as a notification that tells you, take extra time, take caution, um, this sort of incident happened. Using data to give officers context is hard to argue against if it can lead to safer interactions for everyone. But of course, what many people find more concerning is ambient surveillance, surveillance that happens all the time. And despite much pressure, the NYPD has yet to release an explicit facial recognition policy. And where do the efforts stand on facial recognition technology? Our facial identification section, which sits under the Detective Bureau, is a group of trained detectives, investigators. They use a, a tool, an algorithm, that compares faces that we might get from a surveillance photo, and they run that algorithm, get potential matches, and then conduct an investigation. It's not as simple as, you know, a facial recognition hit occurs, and that's suddenly licensed to make an arrest. It doesn't generate probable cause for us. We still require 
much more evidence in order to make a determination that that hit is truly viable and something we can act on. But there are cases where that technology has been used as part of an arrest or prosecution. In the absence of an explicit policy, Ben wasn't able to answer the question live in the room, but we did get a statement from the NYPD. The NYPD has moved deliberately and responsibly in the use of facial recognition software. There is no NYPD case where an arrest or prosecution was brought on the basis of facial recognition. The NYPD uses it on a case-by-case basis, and the case must always be supported by further investigation before any arrest is made. The NYPD has absolutely no interest in wholesale surveillance, which would be an enormous and entirely pointless task. We have little choice but to trust. But that said, Ben did speak convincingly about how the NYPD actually uses technology to police themselves. There's also statistical tools around fairness that can actually measure whether an algorithm is fair, whether it's causing bias, etc. And so we're very interested in utilizing these metrics, and we fully embrace them. We, we want to get better, and we're taking a conservative approach because we know how high stakes this is. The stakes are high, and the path is murky. I didn't know what to expect at the NYPD. Would they optimize purely for reducing crime, or would they take a broader view of justice? Personally, I found Ben reassuring, but the potential for abuse remains. So how do we, here in America, guard against that abuse? Well, let's return to Mary Haskett, who founded Blink Identity with Alex Kilpatrick. Anytime you're using FaceRec without consent, it's going to get abused because why wouldn't it? And and here's the problem. I don't think it's appropriate to ask a police department to just voluntarily not use a tool that's awesome for them. I mean, you need to have a different level. You need to have your, you know, governor, federal, state, some government governing body needs to be saying, sorry, this is not appropriate. This is violating people's rights. The difference between what is happening in China and in the U.S. is not technological. It's cultural and political. Edward Snowden had a phrase for this, turnkey tyranny, meaning that the technical infrastructure of mass surveillance already exists and that we're only protected by our values and our laws. And thinking of China... I think there are some profoundly creepy things that we are right on the edge of starting to see. There's cameras everywhere. If you add face recognition, it's not just, oh, they saw my face. They saw that I went to Starbucks. It's where you were every day, every time, all over history, and all of that gets saved. It's my pattern of where I go when I'm outdoors forever. Five years ago, I would have said that could never happen here. Part of the reason Mary cares so much about privacy is that she knows how quickly facial recognition is spreading. In fact, in 2018, Blink Identity raised money from Live Nation, Ticketmaster's parent company, to allow future concertgoers to use their faces instead of their tickets. We wanted to be a case study of how to do this in a way that preserves individual privacy and, you know, respects the individual, and maybe that will help set a precedent, and maybe some of these other objectionable, you know, use cases just won't be able to take off. Facial recognition and other AI technologies are being developed all over the world, and we can't trust everyone to be as conscientious as Mary and Alex. In America, the liberty we take for granted is hard-won and fragile, And cases like Glenn's show what can happen when algorithms are blindly trusted to determine outcomes. So much hangs in the balance right now about our technological future, 
and the decisions we take will affect our lives profoundly and echo through the lives of our children too. I mentioned Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol earlier. To me, one of the most powerful scenes in the book is Scrooge seeing for the first time the chains he has made for himself through his own decisions. Nowadays, we would call those decisions and those chains longitudinal data, and they'd be very hard to get rid of. They're the record that Glenn couldn't shake, that might deny a Chinese citizen a plane ticket, or deny you health insurance because of your social media activity. But data can also set us free. In the next episode, we investigate what's possible when our data is used to help us. From a dying man brought back to his youth, to movies and music that read our bodies while they play. And what happens when Alexa becomes part of the family? Alexa, how long back did Tyrannodons live? Hmm, I don't know that one. I am still learning more about dinosaurs. That's okay. Here's some dinosaur trivia. Chill out. Walkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at sleepwalkerspodcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Special thanks this episode to Laurie Earlham and Lucy Brady. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Voloshin. And co-hosted by me, Kara Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Chicoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Recording assistance this episode from Dinat Pritchap, Rachel London and Phil Bodger. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Oz Voloshin, and Mangesh Hatikula. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.